0: Welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in
1: science. Every Thursday, we go to the source of the story to open up the work behind beautiful new discoveries and cut through misinformation in the media.
0: I'm your host, James, and today I'm bringing in a paper about humans and Neanderthals hooking
1: up. Ooh, that sounds sexy. I am your other host, Charlie. I've not read this paper, so I'm going to be asking James a lot of questions today.
0: We're both PhD students who read lots of papers for our own research. So this podcast is our way of sharing our love for science with anyone who wants to learn about the discoveries that affect us all. We are the Paper
1: Boys. All right, James, you piqued my curiosity here. I'm wondering what you mean when you talk about humans and Neanderthals hooking up. What's this paper all about? So recently
0: in headlines uh, in the science news sections, there have been a lot about humans and Neanderthals getting it on tens of thousands of years. Sounds racy. Yeah, pretty racy. And this is very different from sort of previous models of humans and Neanderthals being totally separate groups. So this has kind of taken human genetics to a new a new place and a new understanding of human evolution.
1: Okay, so this is like in way long time ago, humans and Neanderthals, two different species,
0: right? Yeah, so that's been the common paradigm for a long time, but this is starting to turn on its head. And thanks to a listener request from Nate, he
1: pointed us out to this paper and some interesting findings that have come out recently. I saw his email uh, in our inbox, and there was a a pretty silly headline. So I'm looking forward to you getting through some of these news articles. Yeah. So in science news, there's been some interesting headlines, like you
0: mentioned. One from Pop Science is, Early humans hooked up with other species a whole bunch. Mm. Some other classy ones were, Neanderthals and humans interbred 100,000 years ago, which we'll actually look into that some more. From Live Science, we have, Neanderthals and humans were hooking up way more than anyone expected. Okay. And uh, there are a lot more headlines kind of in that similar vein.
1: I mean, I would have clicked on every single one of these articles. It sounds so cool. Yeah, you're like, did they have Tinder back then? How are they doing it? I know. Yeah, you know, sex sells, especially when you're talking about human Neanderthals getting it on. Yeah. (laughs)
0: So as a dutiful paper boy, I decided to look into this article. That Nate so generously pointed out to us. And it turns out the findings are actually really interesting. So it seemed like a great fit for the podcast. And I'm really excited to bring it in today.
1: Cool. So, what is the actual paper? Where was it published? Who wrote it? So, the primary paper
0: from that headline, at least, was multiple episodes of interbreeding between Neanderthal and modern humans. And this was published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. Okay,
1: multiple episodes. So are they going to be talking about specific instances that they've found where populations came together?
0: This is more a general perspective on when did humans and Neanderthals interact? And if we look at genetic data that we have available to us today, can we make any inferences of whether like humans and Neanderthals uh, intermixed at one point and then spread out from each other? Or was this sort of a more ongoing intermittent relationship between humans and Neanderthals before Neanderthals
1: fully disappeared. Okay. So pardon me if I get some jargon wrong here, but does that mean that they're studying modern human genomes in order to get these conclusions?
0: Yes. So they're using genetic data provided by the 1000 Genome Project. Okay. This was uh, like a 10-year project, I think. I don't know the exact details on it, but essentially they have a thousand human genomes that they've pretty much fully characterized from people all over the world. So it acts as a good data source for actually analyzing this.
1: Okay, like it's representative of the world population, all the different genomes that you might find. Yeah,
0: people from all different parts of the world. Okay. So it's really interesting for studying the evolution of humans and also their migrations to different parts of the world.
1: Okay, so one of those headlines said that this happened 100,000 years ago. Was that accurate? I'm just trying to get a sense of when and where. Give some context to all this Hooking up. <laughs> <laughs> On an order of magnitude,
0: it's correct. This is very rough. So, anthropologists would probably be upset at this. But roughly, anatomically modern humans left Africa around 75,000 years ago. And the full migrations of like modern humans into Europe and Asia occurred between 47 and 55,000 years ago.
1: Really? I didn't realize it was that recent. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, reasonable. I know that's a long time ago, <laughs> but to me, I always thought of this as hundreds of thousands of years kind of thing.
0: No. So the hundreds of thousands of years ago timescale is more our distant ancestors. So species like Homo erectus and Homo heidelbergensis, if I said that right. Okay. I've totally heard of that one. <laughs> <laughs> but no. <laughs> so if you look at the, there's plenty of graphics of descendant trees for Homo sapiens. Okay. And so, essentially from Homo heidelbergensis, it's kind of like our most distant common ancestor, that spun off Homo sapiens, Neanderthals, this other group of people called Denisovans. Denisovans,
1: Okay. I, <laughs> we'll just pick one pronunciation. If it's wrong, who cares? Everyone will know what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, there's plenty of right ways to wrongly pronounce Latin.
1: Yes. Right? As, our, as our good friend Dan Carlin likes to
0: say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, uh, There are basically three main branches. There are a few other kind of scattering branches. But yeah, 500,000 years ago, we started to split off.
1: Okay. So when humans and Neanderthals are, are getting together, they're like cousins almost because we both came from the same common ancestor. Yeah. So like if you want a visual
0: metaphor for it, you could think of like the branches of a tree coming down with one branch being like Homo sapiens, another being Neanderthals, another being Denisovans. And then there are these little strings that tie them together, and those would be like interbreeding between the species.
1: Okay. So then you said that Homo sapiens were leaving Africa around 50,000 years ago, you said, or going into Europe around 50,000 years ago?
0: Yeah. So there's this migration from Africa through the Middle East, and then the population split then between Homo sapiens
1: going to Europe and Homo sapiens going to Asia. Oh, I see. So where was all the Neanderthal mixing happening? So
0: there's a school of thought that there was initially just one mixing period that would be like just one of these episodes in the Middle East. We intermixed with Neanderthals and then split off. And the reason that they know that we intermixed is because modern day humans, if you have European or Asian ancestry, you have about 2% genetic data that matches with Neanderthals.
1: Oh, yeah. I've been since it was just Christmas. And everyone's been talking about their 23 Me DNA results that everyone seems to have gotten this year. Yeah. Everyone keeps telling me, oh, it turns out I have 2.1% Neanderthal DNA. It's like, and I've just been, I only recently found out that this was a thing.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty common, I guess. Okay. Um, this is different if you have like full African origins in your ancestry. You would not
1: have that Neanderthal percentage. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. So this was only happening in Eurasia. Yes. Okay. Yep. You like my my good little geographic term there. Yeah. Do you pull that straight from risk? (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) So we had some clues that humans and Neanderthals had intermixed at some point, but there's this interesting observation from the genetic data, specifically from the 1000 Genome Project, that people from East Asia actually have a slightly higher percentage of Neanderthal DNA than people from Europe. Really? How much higher? So it's 20% higher. So if you look at overall genetic material Maybe if you have European origins, you'd have 2%, and someone from East Asia might have 2.4% that matches with the Neanderthal.
1: Okay. All right. So East Asia, they were getting a little more, a little more hooking up going on. A
0: little more frisky. Maybe they just had more time. Okay. It's a little bit longer journey, maybe.
1: Okay. Maybe the
0: Neanderthals were just nicer over there. Yeah. Better food. You know, you invite someone over. Good relationships. Yeah. Maybe they invented mead. Who knows? okay. I like where you're (laughs) going with that. (laughs) But so, from this evidence, people were wondering what sort of mechanisms could give rise to this difference in Neanderthal ancestry between these two populations. Okay. So, the paper is trying to get
1: at those mechanisms. Exactly. Okay. So, how did they actually do this study then?
0: So, they formulated a few different hypotheses that could explain this discrepancy in Neanderthal ancestry. One was that it's possible you could get this single episode mixture, so humans and Neanderthals in the Middle East, and then they split off. And then, for some reason, the population in Europe. Lost it through dilution. Maybe it was like disadvantageous to mate with Neanderthals. So populations in Europe mated with them less over a period of tens of thousands of years and that diluted the uh, Neanderthal genetics. Okay. Another possible hypothesis is that this mixing, they call it admixture, which just means mixing. Okay. Uh, happened multiple times. So there was what they call a first pulse, <laughs> basically a first <laughs> intermixing of. Neanderthals and Homo sapiens in the Middle East. And then this was supplemented by additional pulses. (laughs) Okay. I just think it's funny, like, the euphemisms in science and what what it actually
1: means. I promise we're mature scientists. We promise. (laughs) Sometimes it's funny. Okay. So the two hypotheses are Europeans just stopped admixing with Neanderthals over time. And then another hypothesis is that it was roughly the same Amount of admixture, but there were multiple instances of it in East Asia, causing a higher percentage to show up today.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so when I was doing your research on this, it seems like there are different populations of Neanderthals that have been identified. The genetic content is pretty similar amongst them. Like there's less genetic variety. Oh, okay. But, but there were populations in like the Iberian Peninsula in Spain. There was a group in Croatia, and then there's a group in sort of in southern Siberia.
1: Okay. Do they, how do they know about these populations? Just fossils and stuff? Mostly fossil
0: records. This is a tangent, but there was a cool research paper that actually identified Neanderthal cave paintings in Spain that Whoa. predate human arrival to the Iberian Peninsula. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, they're crazy. And so the earliest
1: artists were Neanderthals. Yeah,
0: potentially. I mean, it's cool. It's very symbolic. Like there's these weird symbols and like these like ladders. Some of them look like pretty crazy glyphs almost. Wow. Not to say that they had like a written language. That's not what I'm getting at, but like pretty creative. But they weren't just random scribbles on a wall. It it got beyond just like the hand paintings that you see where they have the outline of the hand. Yeah. And they actually dated it really cool to say that it was Neanderthals. They looked at calcium deposits that had developed on the ink and over the ink. Whoa. Because that would have to happen after the laying of the ink. Yeah. They dated that and that predated
1: human arrival. That's insane. Homosapien arrival. That's really insane.
0: Yeah. So okay,
1: so they've been looking at these fossil records and cave paintings and stuff and they understand these different populations of Neanderthals.
0: Yep. And then there are fo- or there's actual genetic testing they can do from bones that they discover.
1: Okay. So out of curiosity and hopefully this isn't too much of a tangent either. Have they found fossils that show this admixture? Uh yes. Yes, in slightly different ways. Okay. What do you mean by that?
0: So, they found an individual in a cave in Romania called Pestera Truose, Cave of Bones. It's the rough translation. Okay. So, you can imagine what they found in there. Sounds pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah, they had to, like, scuba dive through a river into this bear cave to find oh, the bones. Oh, my gosh. But that's a tangent. It's like a Harry Potter
1: chapter or something. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Thank you, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> um, this was cool. They found, actually, an individual who had a recent Neanderthal great-great-grandparent. Whoa. And if I remember correctly, this was from about like 30,000 years ago that the fossil, they think the person died. Okay. So that's kind of like an
1: interesting find. Yeah, to find something that's like that close to one of these admixing events. Yeah. It's probably pretty hard to nail it within that couple of years <laughs> or 100 years or so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then um, this is slightly different, but just to say that these species actually intermixed, uh, this was really cool. They found an individual from 90,000 years ago. This is pre-human migration, but it shows the offspring of a Neanderthal and a Denisovan parent. Whoa. So they're able to look at different uh, DNA that had been passed into the skeleton. So mitochondria DNA that's passed on from a mother and then chromosomal DNA, which would have some evidence of the father as
1: well. That's insane. Yeah. They found like a direct descendant of two different species who had bred. Yes. That's really crazy. So... And you said that was from 90,000 years ago. Is it even common to find any human fossil from 90,000 years ago? Is this just one among thousands that we know of? Or is it significant that we were able to find one of these Neanderthal-Denisovan offspring? To find a direct
0: offspring of a pairing like that, there are probably less than five in the world. This may be the only one. Really? From what I know. I, I don't, I'm I do not familiar with
1: the whole body of literature, but... But yeah. what I'm trying to get at is... Is that because it's uncommon for one of those descendants to exist? Or is it uncommon to find any fossils from that time at all?
0: So there are very few Denisovan bones that have been found in the world. So the fact that one of them is an offspring between a Denisovan parent and a Neanderthal parent, at least just based on the current amount of data, suggests this is much more common than we had originally thought.
1: That's crazy. So like, if it was a random sampling, let's say we have found five Denisovan fossils ever one of those was an offspring with a Neanderthal. So that could mean that there was a lot of admixture going on.
0: Yeah. I mean, it could be totally random, too, and, like, we were just lucky and found the one instance where it happened.
1: Sure, but, but what are the odds, you know?
0: Probabilistically, yeah.
1: So it sounds like it's the Neanderthals who are really doing the interspecies stuff. Getting a little frisky. Stuff. Yeah. They're jumping back and forth. Yeah. yeah. They saw the humans and were like, all right. Y- yeah. I'm getting tired of these Denisovans." It does bring up
0: a lot of questions of, like, Why were they intermixing and how were they intermixing? A professor at the University of Washington, Dr. Kelsey Harris, suggests in a funny way that these interbreeding episodes was kind of a way of genetically topping off their genomes for a bit of extra genetic variation. Huh. What we're still not sure, though, is like, were these consensual relationships or were these, this could have been like different tribes like pillaging and raping other tribes we you oh, have wow. no idea yeah. culturally like how
1: this happened. Yeah. So maybe we should stop joking about it. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> kind of messed up now. <laughs> well,
0: yeah. I mean, it could have been, it could have been friendly. Yeah. Who knows?
1: <laughs> um, well, th- okay. So that's crazy. So I realize that I've kind of thrown you onto a tangent, but I- back to the original paper we've been talking about. So are, have they been looking at these fossil records or are they doing other things to look at these, pulses and different ad mixing events?
0: Yeah, so that's a great question. They were looking at
1: purely genetic
0: data from the Thousand Genome Project, and really what they're trying to do is just give some credence to multiple episodes happening, and to do a comparison of whether it's more likely, based on the current genetic data, that there was dilution, or whether there were just more frequent mixing episodes in East Asia and less frequent in Europe. Okay. So the way they went about this was... they pulled the genetic data from the Thousand Genome Project, and they did what is called fragment frequency spectrum um, analysis. And so basically they're, they're looking through different snippets of DNA where they know there are some Neanderthal traits. They're comparing them between individuals from East Asia and Europe, looking at the frequency of occurrence. And then they use statistical probabilistic models and then a neural network to essentially evaluate five different migrations that could have occurred with intermixing. So there's this like one pulse migration where Homo sapiens and Neanderthals mate once and then Homo sapiens spread off to Europe and Asia. Okay.
1: There's Are these are these five different scenarios ones that have been proposed before? Did these scientists come up with five scenarios to put into their neural net? Or is it more a technique for them to establish like a scale of number of pulses? So that if let's say one pulse comes out with a good result from their neural net, then they know that that's the most likely explanation. If the three-pulse input ends up with the best fit, then they know that that's the most likely explanation.
0: Yeah, so it's more the latter. These ideas have been hypothesized about in different literature and different sources, but they kind of came up
1: with five distinct, pretty generic models. As a way of sort of just controlling the input of number of pulses then.
0: Yeah, the number of pulses and then... They also added a factor for dilution as well. Oh, okay. So that they could compare and see which, based on the data that we currently have, uh, which would be the most likely. So it's this posterior probabilistic analysis, as they call it. Okay, I see. Because there's so many factors, that was what motivated their use for using neural networks and machine learning. It allows you to take this really complex data for which you may not be able to come up with an analytical model and come up with a model that could be describing what's happening. Like it's hard... For a human to pull out, what are the important variables? But neural networks are good at doing that. That's what they're designed to do. Doing that, they found pretty good success. Their trained networks could classify models successfully about almost sixty percent of the time, which doesn't sound very good. But based on the models that they had, the random chance would be twenty percent.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds good to me when you're talking about trying to propagate back. So far, it just sounds like a very complicated study. So getting it right 60% of the time. That's a passing grade. Passing. Yep. You know, they're not trying to come up with like the definitive answer for
0: this is how humans and Neanderthals related, but they're trying to show very roughly like which model best fits the data just to say this is most likely what happened and to spark other research. In the paper, they're they're
1: very honest about the limitations of their work. Okay. That's good. So If they can at least focus in on a potential hypothesis, then it'll allow people to maybe expand that scenario into a set of more variables you can look at.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay. And Uh, hopefully start to zero in on something that perfectly matches what we see in the thousand genome data today.
0: Yeah. So if you think of, like, human knowledge of uh, homo sapien evolution over time, you can think of this curvy line that's going in all sorts of different directions— this is just kind of nudging it in the direction that maybe we intermixed with Neanderthals in
1: more occasions than one. Okay. On more occasions than one. That's and, cool. Cool application of a neural net, a buzzword that I don't know much about.
0: But. <laughs> yeah. They, were, they kind of had an, a funny description of the neural networks that they used too. I'll get to in a sec. The big thing that they found from the neural network analysis was that the three pulses of admixture uh, had the highest likelihood based on current data. Oh, really? So there were three key events where humans and
1: Neanderthals mixed. Okay, spread out over a specific amount of time?
0: Yeah, it was spread out over a specific amount of time, however long the migrations took. They do provide that data in their methods section. The next most probable that they found was a model of three pulses of admixture and dilution in Europe that was slightly less likely. Okay. But possible as well. Okay. Okay.
1: What do you mean when you say dilution?
0: Dilution is the population in Europe um, reducing the amount that they mix with Neanderthals I see. and leading to a dilution of
1: the genetics. I see. So they there would have been three instances where the populations came together and reproduced a lot, but over those three pulses, it became less of an overlap of the populations. Yes, yeah. Okay. So interesting that both of the two most likely scenarios is three pulses.
0: Yeah, yeah. Based on their analysis... Like I don't know enough about genetics and population migration to say whether this is conclusive that like three pulses is the path to take to look for future investigations. But it is interesting that in their two best cases had three pulses.
1: Yeah. And I'd be interested to see if in the other literature, anyone has offered anything remotely definitive as to say it is this number of pulses or that it's pulses at all.
0: That's a good point. It'll be interesting to see what research is actually spurred from this and where it comes. Because neural networks can be somewhat opaque, you don't really know what's happening to the weights under the hood. They did actually go into their neural network and look at this and compare it with a second data set, which gives more credence to their findings. They had success looking at a different data set and were pretty convinced that the neural network wasn't just coming up with garbage.
1: Okay, that's good. Reassuring.
0: (laughs) Yeah, especially for a paper in
1: Nature. Yeah, because like I said, I wouldn't know the difference. That's just, to me, it's just a buzzword. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where to other people, they could devote their whole life to that. So,
0: Yeah, it's just kind of this weird black box. <laughs> yeah. Neural network. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It, it works. What I liked about the paper, too, was they talked about some of the issues that could be coming up from their findings. One would be misclassifying Neanderthal ancestry. Because there's some Denisovan DNA present um, in East Asian populations as well, it's possible that it could be misclassified from Neanderthals. Uh, oh, okay. They took a couple steps to mitigate misclassification. This has been talked about in other studies. Okay. So they're pretty confident that
1: they they were not misclassifying it. Okay. That's interesting. So what is like the main takeaway from this paper? The
0: main takeaway really is that despite these initial indications of a simple admixing history between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, this analysis suggests that there might be additional population-specific admixing. Okay. Okay between European populations and East Asian populations.
1: Okay, so it just gives us a better resolution of the picture that we already knew existed where humans and Neanderthals were interbreeding.
0: Yeah, it's likely that it's more than just this one chance encounter in the Middle East as the populations were migrating. As they were migrating, there were probably a few different periods that this happened.
1: Okay, so maybe with that conclusion from this paper, some researchers can start to look into or trying to find when those pulses were. Try to identify specific instances or something.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be really interesting, the more human remnants that we find and Neanderthal remnants, to see how the actual data supports these models. Huh. It'll be, it'll be fascinating to see.
1: Yeah, it sounds like one of those things that will require a major archaeological find where we just suddenly discover a lot of these fossils and then that'll just blast the doors wide open on the theory
0: yeah some different authors had suggested like maybe in central asia so like in kazakhstan and some of those countries there may be an interesting link that we haven't
1: discovered yet oh okay like a geographic link between these these two differences Mm -hmm. huh yeah well hopefully something like that will turn up yeah it's
0: fascinating it's just you know it's really crazy to think of human existence uh, 60,000 years ago and these different populations intermixing and interacting, like, it's fascinating on so many different levels, like genetics, sociology, evolution, everything.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So I'm curious with a paper that's as, I don't want to say speculative, but that talks about something that's so distant in the past and that's such, it's not a very sure thing at all. I'm curious how news articles were able to digest this and report on it
0: from the news articles that I read many of them actually got quotes from the authors which helps the truth in it because they can build most of the article around what the author says okay I think the biggest fault that I found which we often find in the news articles is that they take the conclusions from this paper and run with it like it's just absolute fact yeah and really this paper was not saying that humans and Neanderthals were just like hooking up all the time yeah. as the title suggested. The paper itself is really just saying we interacted with Neanderthals more. I mean, interacted is a euphemism, obviously. Yeah.
1: But it, but I mean if you're going to be interbreeding then you have all kinds of cultural interlinking, I'm sure.
0: Well, potentially. Yeah. But it but it could have been I mean it could have been pretty violent. Like we don't right. we don't really know what this interaction was like. Yeah. And really all this paper is saying is like Yeah, we probably interacted more with Neanderthals than we originally thought.
1: Yeah, and what I picked up from the headlines, like the first one that I saw when Nate sent it to us in our email was humans and Neanderthals hooked up a whole bunch and the subtitle was something like, this was more common than we we thought, so let's get used to it. But that makes it sound like it was common in the day-to-day lives of ancient humans and ancient Neanderthals, whereas this paper is really saying it was common, quote-unquote, in the sense that it didn't happen between just one set of populations. It may have happened 3 times over the course of 50,000 years or yeah, 20,000 whatever the number of thousands of years it was.
0: <laughs> and who knows if there were like certain human populations that like just passed by and didn't interact like who knows what daily life was like. Right. These so, are it's a very sparse data set.
1: Right. For the grand majority of these ancient humans as far as this paper is concerned, they did not breed with Neanderthals. Most likely. There were probably just a couple of civilizations or large populations of them that over the course of a couple hundred years had a common interaction.
0: Yeah, at least that's my takeaway from it. Hmm. It could be flawed.
1: Well, that's interesting. I'm sure that part of why it got all the coverage in the news was those kinds of sexed up headlines. And you know, I don't I don't fault them for that. It's it's interesting to get to read about this science for any reason, so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like it's an effective way of spread spreading new scientific findings. So, as scientists, I think we can always appreciate people taking interest in what's happening.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing in that paper. I'm I'm glad you did. I learned a ton, and it gives me a little more perspective on my great, 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 <laughs> however many <laughs> great, however many greats great. I have to say, grandparents. Absolutely. Yeah. Probably were getting it on with me Pauls. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Uh, it's amazing that you're able to do that. It's it's really one of those papers, too, that I think uh, you'll think about for a long time because it's just fascinating. Yeah, it's, definitely. It's in, all, it's
1: in many of us. Yeah, it affects most of us. So,
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to subscribe and to share with your friends. We're available on social media at paperboyspod. And as we mentioned earlier, we love getting episode recommendations or any comments, questions that you had about the episode.
1: Yeah, you can find more about the episode on our website, paperboyspodcast.com. Our email address is on there, too, paperboyspod at com. Send us a story request like Nate did, and we'll get on an episode. So Join us next week for another exciting edition of Paperboys. Thanks for listening.